Hello and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today we speak with Dr. Nicole Polk. Nicole is an assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and the advisor lead for gene engineering at Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. Nicole's lab builds technology to advance the entire field of viral gene therapy. They are a force behind the rising tide lifting the gene therapy industry. She's also committed to training the next generation of scientists innovators. Let's get right into it. Uh, It's my pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Nicole Polk. She is an assistant professor at UCSF uh, in the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics. Uh, Nicole, tell us a little bit about your work. Um, Let's jump right into what you do in your lab. Yeah, absolutely. So we're a predominantly gene therapy lab, and we focus on one particular virus called adeno-associated virus, or AAV. And this is kind of the gold standard safety virus that we use for all types of gene therapy uh, in both human trials as well as veterinary trials. And in my lab, uh, unlike most gene therapy labs that are focused on one particular disease or one particular pathway or one particular thing that the entire lab is focused on, my group is a little bit different in that we are disease agnostic and tissue agnostic and organ agnostic, we instead focus on ways to improve gene therapy using AAV kind of at a platform level, much more broadly. So are there ways that we can manufacture it cheaper, easier, faster, better? Are there ways that we can deliver it that are more efficacious? Are there ways that we can um, tailor or modify or tag the capsid or engineer the capsid itself? Are there ways that we can engineer the payload the virus is delivering to be more powerful or less powerful or um, controllable with uh, various types of toggles and switches? So so things kind of in that vein where we're um, trying to improve broadly for the entire field, the technology to help enable everybody else um, to do their specific favorite thing cheaper, easier, faster, uh, more efficacious for the patients. Gosh, I, okay, I have so many questions. Let's start, though, for, <laughs> for our listeners who maybe are, are like policy guys and, and just heard you say you're doing viruses and they're scared of viruses because those give us the cold and, and everything else. What is gene therapy, just for you know, a, a lay audience? So for a lay audience, this is basically um, using, using genes as medicine. So um, one way you can perform gene therapy is using a virus, where you use a virus to deliver a medicine, and rather than that, that medicine being a chemical, like things that you're used to taking, things like aspirin, we use this virus to deliver a genetic medicine. So it's maybe delivering a copy of a gene that you were never born with, uh, or a gene that perhaps was mutated because you know you were out in the sun too much, or you were exposed to some kind of environmental um, insult. Uh, and so it's very simply, it's just genetic medicine rather than chemical medicine. And we can deliver that, that medicine with a virus, we can deliver it with things that aren't viruses. There's a number of different ways that we can deliver these types of therapies, but I specialize in the type that's delivered with a virus. And that's simply because viruses have evolved to be fantastic, basically little FedEx trucks. They're really good at getting inside of you and delivering packages. Yeah. Uh, and we can pick viruses that go to different parts of your body uh, and then use those as, as really nice delivery tools. 
Now, I want to put on uh, my scientific geek hat for a second. So you mentioned that, that you guys are kind of engineering a platform. And on your, your profile, you say you combine virology, bioengineering, proteomics, bioinformatics. Talk about the design process here. Or is it rational design, like synthetic biology? Or are you doing directed evolution? How do you actually engineer these things? So we do both. Um, we do some that's, that's biased up front. So given a body of knowledge that maybe we already know, how can we use that information to inform us to change the virus, whether it's the shell of the virus or it's what it's delivering on the inside, the payload. Um, but we also can do the opposite, where it's completely unbiased, and we do things like directed evolution and just allow, um, under a certain selective pressure, the virus to evolve whatever property is that we want, but without knowing in advance um, what those changes will be. So we okay. do. And can you walk us through maybe a typical laboratory experiment? How do you know if the virus is going to work? You know, what do you do to test the efficacy? So that entirely, like the different type of experiment, like are you designing a virus um, that can be produced? Um, at higher titer versus are you designing at um, freeze thawed? Are you designing a virus that has tags on it that allow the virus to now enter a tissue that it couldn't enter before? Um, so it kind of depends on the experiment you're doing, how you would assess whether or not it can do the new property that, that you've evolved or, or engineered it to have. I think maybe what would be helpful is to understand a bit more of the, the context around gene therapy. So where are we today and how does that compare to, say, the history of the field? And then, you know, what's, what's going to be tomorrow? So right now is probably the hottest time in gene therapy ever. <laughs> um, and and that, is not a, that is not an editorialization or an exaggeration. Um, we are for the first time, I mean, literally in the last, last couple months, much less the last one or two years, that are seeing a positive benefit for the patients where, you know, they had a mutation, they were born with this mutation, they don't express a particular enzyme or a protein that they need to survive. And now they're seeing some level of expression. Not only are we for the first time really effectively and safely treating these patients, but for some disorders, I mean, we're, we're able to use the magic C word, which is, which is cure. I mean, some of these kids and adults, we've actually managed to cure them of their disease for all intents and purposes. Um, so it's, Give me, give me an idea. What are a few of the diseases where this is being used? Specifically for AAV or across other viral? Yeah, across, across the, the spectrum of gene therapy. The most attention is probably going to the AAV trials right now. And so the one FDA-approved AAV gene therapeutic that exists in the United States uh, is a product called Luxterna from Spark mm -hmm. Therapeutics, which was just bought by Roche, I think, a month ago, two months ago. And that's an AAV that treats an inherited form of retinal blindness. So these kids are born blind, uh, can't see. They're missing one particular protein in their retina. And mm -hmm. if you just use a virus that goes in, they do an injection into the eye to express this protein that these kids mm -hmm. are missing, and now they can see. Amazing. So that's the only FDA-approved product. There are a number of things that are just shy of getting FDA-approved. They're in their final state of approval. And these are things for, um, so one of the, the ones that everyone is most excited, excited about is one called spinal muscular atrophy. Mm -hmm. so it sounds spinal muscle, so the muscles along your spine atrophy or waste away. And so these kids mm -hmm. are essentially bedridden, can't move. And some of these kids, I think there's 12 of whom so far have been treated. Some of them, I mean, the, the ones in the highest dose cohort went from being bedridden to walking. It's unbelievable. It's miraculous. It's amazing. It's some of the best. You can even Google these videos. If you just yeah. Google gene therapy, spinal muscular atrophy videos, you can mm -hmm. see these videos. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I want to come back to talking about both the, the promise of the field and also maybe some of the challenges. But uh, just before we, we kind of leave the topic of the, the platform tools you build, how do you disseminate those to the field? So you want to help others make you know, their therapies better, faster, stronger. Um, what is the community like? What are the, the distribution channels for your innovations? 
first and foremost, you, you share this orally at conferences, so either giving a poster or a talk. So conferences are how we get out like the fastest, the information, get feedback, go back to the drawing board, um, share information, go back and forth. And then once it's ready, in order to make sure it gets out in written form as soon as possible, we have a policy um, uh, in my lab that we put out preprints. So these go on to somewhere like BioArchive or protocols.io. And then they also, uh, so that's first, just to, like get it out there to share with everyone. And then we subsequently submit it to, you know, your standard peer reviewed journals. And then in some cases, we'll also do, you know, other things like make videos or something to, to put on the lab website and other things like that. And doing things like sharing it with podcasts and going out and try to um, share it with the community. And then in terms of actual biomaterial, so you can do MTAs, material transfer agreements out of UCSF and so forth. Absolutely. Um, so any technologies that we develop um, obviously get freely shared with any academic uh, or nonprofit. All they have to do is, is submit a one page form MTA uh, and then can also be shared with industry. It's just a little bit bigger of an MTA. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Not that I have no say over that. That's that's yeah. the university. <laughs> no, that's, that's very neat. So it sounds like I, I can infer what the promise is here, and you alluded to it, that we could actually cure diseases that have a genetic basis. Exactly. Um, maybe, you know, eat a bit of humble pie. Tell us, what have some of the setbacks in gene therapy been? Because I know, you know, science has been talking about this for a long time. It has, about and 20 I, years. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, our, the scientific media has a way of hyping things um, often yeah. to our detriment. But maybe you can describe a high-profile miss and then show where we've kind of learned from that. So, I mean, without a doubt, the most high-profile miss was the one that really set the field back. I believe it was in 1993. Don't quote me on the year, but it was in the, the mid-90s, and the field suffered an unexpected death. Okay. Uh, so that was a patient whose name is Jesse Gelsinger. It was not an AAV, it was an adenovirus, mm -hmm. um, but it was a gene therapy trial. Um, and, and yeah, there was an unexpected adverse event and, and he did die as a result of that gene therapy trial. And that like the field ended immediately. You couldn't run a trial, you couldn't get funding, you couldn't get a grant. The field literally died uh, and stayed that way for about 10 years until a number of investigators through like slow trodden work were able to figure out why he died, what happened, and basically engineer in controls so that that wouldn't that couldn't and wouldn't happen again and and now here we are you know gosh what you know 15 mm -hmm. or so more more years later um, as far as more recent setbacks and challenges um, one of the the biggest challenges to date and it has been this way since day one uh, is delivery um, mm -hmm. can you get the virus to go exactly where you want it to go so we can get those to express what we want them to express mm -hmm. how we want them to express it uh, but we want to make sure that it goes to the right place so if it's only a heart disorder you want to make sure the virus only goes to the heart and isn't also going to the brain or the kidney or other key organs particularly if it's delivering something that that you don't want expressed mm -hmm. somewhere else so delivery. So what, what are the delivery strategies? You mentioned for the, in the eye example, injection to the site, but is there something else there? For tissues that have like a protected bubble, so things like the eye and the brain, it's less of a challenge because you can do a direct injection right into those sites and it tends not to leak out because it is an enclosed space. But for diseases, so say like a skeletal muscle disorder, like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, that's every single muscle, skeletal muscle in your body that's affected. So the only way to effectively get the virus to those places is you have to give it intravenously and have it disseminate throughout the body and go everywhere. But even then, you want it to go into the skeletal muscle. You don't want it to go into the other organs. Organs. Figuring out a way to engineer it so that it, it goes everywhere in the entire body to get to every muscle 
but doesn't get wasted in places like the kidney, the liver, the heart, um, the lungs. So that mm -hmm. way you maximize the dose to the tissue you want. That is still a challenge. And so that's one of the types of things that we work on the lab is how can you, how can you either modify the capsid itself or tag the capsid with something or add an engineerable control mm -hmm. switch so that the virus now only works if it gets to the tissue you want and there's something else at that tissue that activates it. So that way you can, you can better control where the virus is going or at least where it is expressing. Are there examples from nature and, and evolution of viral born diseases that are tissue specific? Oh, all viruses have a tissue preference. I mean, if you think about it, like when you get a cold virus, right? Everyone is out of cold. When you get it, and it's either a rhinovirus or an adenovirus. Right. Um, when you get that cold, you don't feel, you know, you're not sick in your, in your bladder. You're not sick gotcha. in your brain. You're not sick. You know, it already has a preference for your nasopharyngeal tract and your lungs. Where it goes, that's where it replicates. But it doesn't go other tissues. So we can, mm -hmm. we can pick viruses that already have natural preferences for this tissue or that <laughs> tissue. And then we can use that as a, like, as a base point for engineering and then take that virus that we already go. So, I mean, if you wanted to treat lung cancer, that'd be a great virus to use, right? It already goes to the tissue that you want and not tissues you don't want. And so you can use that as a starting point and then add on engineering control bits from there. So that's a common, a common tack that we'll use is mm -hmm. picking viruses that already go to the place we want and not places we don't want. Interesting. And you mentioned briefly just uh, dosage. So I know a lot more about small molecules than I do gene therapies. Is our pharmacodynamics or things like um, PK and PD like concerns in gene therapy as well? How do you, how do you measure dosage? How do you know if it's, you know, how do you optimize that in a virus yeah. to have, you know, sort of the gene around long enough to do its trick? So we do still have to do it, but it doesn't make as much sense. <laughs> uh, we are required to do it for the FDA, but it, it doesn't have the same, there's no like on off with an enzyme. Right. Um, but we are, we are required to find out, you know, like how long does it take to get to the area of interest? So if you give it intravenously, how long does it take to get to the liver? Gotcha. Um, and then how long does it stay there? How long does it take until the virus uncoats and releases mm -hmm. the payload and that starts to express? So you do need to do those types of things. And you do still need to do the standard, you know, toxicity testing. Does the body react in a negative way? To these? Mm -hmm. You still have to do it, but it's different than with a chemotherapeutic or a, or a small molecule. And are the model organisms or the model systems for, for gene therapy similar? So are you still talking about in vitro cell lines in mice? Do you, use, you mentioned veterinary studies. Are there other animals that you guys use? No. So... In general, we'll do all the very, very early validation studies, just like, does this express yes, no? And is it expressing what we want? That'll still be done in vitro, in tissue culture, in two-dimensional adherent cells. Um, but beyond that, mm -hmm. no one will use those because they don't replicate the types of things that we want to see in human patients. And so mm -hmm. there, um, almost all preclinical studies, if it's possible to do, will be done in mice. And then if it's a particularly high morbidity, high mortality disease, that's a rare ultra-orphan disorder, sometimes the FDA will let you get away with just doing mouse studies and then you can go straight to humans. But um, often they do want a large mammal as well. And so then, it, then it, you pick based on your disorder. So I know many groups are doing pigs for things like the heart because the mm -hmm. heart and pig are the same size and orientation as in humans. Um, Non-human primates are used often. Dogs are used. Gotcha. And, and are gene therapies, I suppose, are being investigated for both germinal and somatic-derived genetic disorders? So cancer is, is on the table as well as, you know, sort of birth defects and so forth? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Um, historically with gene therapy, um, any cancer treatments are a special type 
of gene therapy called oncolytic gene therapy, where we okay. actually use viruses that lyse cells, which normally you would not want if you were treating a right, right. Inherited, uh, an inherited disorder that you've had since birth. You, you want to make sure those cells survive. You just want to provide them with a, a gene that they were missing. But in cancer, you specifically want to kill those cells. And so you use a virus there. It's called an oncolytic. So just like mm -hmm. it sounds, onco cancer, lytic, two lice. Um, and then as they replicate, they, they cause the cells to burst into lice. And that's a way that you could potentially treat, treat a cancer. Gotcha. I'm thinking about some of the things that we've already talked about. I'm curious. So in, in a previous episode where we uh, talked with a friend of mine who's, who's a cell therapy expert, we talked a lot about actually the need in some ways to make it less of an N of one therapy. So th this podcast in general is about precision medicine, but of course we range all over. And so I'm interested to understand which way the wind is blowing in gene therapy. Is it really about tailored gene therapies that target exactly the genetics of that one patient? Or are you guys thinking about like off the shelf, almost, you know, gene therapy medicine? In general, I would say, and this is where um, this is where cell therapies and gene therapies will differ a bit. Not just that one is cells and one is often viruses, mm -hmm. but on the whole, with a couple exceptions, um, cell therapies are are actually more personal. So there's the difference between precision medicine and personalized. Yeah, so cell therapies are often, again, not always, but often personalized medicine. So they they remove the cells from the patient, engineer them for that specific mm -hmm. mutation of the patient, and give them back. Whereas almost almost universally, again with exceptions, in gene therapy, um, it's the opposite. It's off the shelf. We make one therapy for every single patient who has that disorder. Um, the next wave of things to come, and one of the things that we're working on in the lab is, is even one step broader than that. So in addition to, say, treating, having one therapy for every single patient who has a disorder, like, say, hemophilia B, what if you had, for, for disorders in, like, a pathway, where every single one of the pathway steps causes the same disease, regardless of where you have the mutation in the pathway, could you develop a treatment that could work for every single one of the diseases in that pathway with just a single treatment. So then maybe if there's, you know, 10 proteins in the pathway for 10 mm -hmm. different diseases, could you have one therapy that's kind of the mother therapy that treats them all? So that's something that we're also developing for a couple of, of, of key organs of interest. Right. So like looking to hit the regulator, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So if you can really get the, the control element that controls everybody, um, mm -hmm. maybe you could have one therapy that could be used much more broadly, both in, mm -hmm. in genetic disorders, but also potentially in cancers. And the tools you guys are generating, are, are they expressly used to develop medicines or are these also sort of tools for tools? It seems like these oh. viruses would be great probes for other kinds of modalities as well. Some of what we work on in the lab is improvements that won't have anything to do with the therapy. It's just, can we, can we detect these easier? Can we grow them easier? Can we, things kind of on the, the more engineering side, but also, also for experimentation, is there a better way that we could uh, set up these assays to go after this particular AAV in this way or that way, uh, gotcha. but then also to, to actually develop specific therapy. And often on the course of developing a specific therapeutic, we will engineer things you know, on the basic level that can be applied to things, you know, totally beyond that one particular disease that we're working on, but that can be applied much more broadly. And then we'll put those out as like a methods paper. Uh, in, in your, again, in your faculty profile, you describe using proteomics and bioinformatics. Talk to me a bit about the, the data that your lab group grapples with. How do you think about uh, data as an asset for gene therapy and discovery? Do you do that in-house? Do you collaborate? I know UCSF is a great place to find those folks, but uh, yeah, so we do it on, on really two different levels. So um, the all the omics that we're doing, whether it's genomics, proteomics, you know, within the virus, um, some of it is on the basic biology side. So can we, as we're doing these these various engineering steps to try to say improve the capsid, rather than you know design, build, test one at a time, can we do these in libraries? 
where we're doing these thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even millions at a time. Um, so to kind of make it much more high throughput in both the design build test phase, but then also at like the, at the end point, at the therapeutics point, you know, can we, if we're treating patients for, you know, a particular disease, can we sequence those patients and better subtype those patients based on what they're expressing to tailor like, oh, you should get this version of the therapy. Okay. You shouldn't even get it at all because you're not going to be a responder, etc. So there is a, there is a biomarker stratification approach. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You're going to do a phase two where you're first looking at, mm-hmm. at efficacy, um, both for the both for the patients and for you as the investigator. You know, you want to make sure that those patients are responders, and it, particularly with these viral therapies, because you can only really get, ever get one injection. Can't get a repeat injection because um, even though the virus that we use is not pathogenic to humans, which means not disease causing. So it's mm-hmm. a safe virus. It's, it's not really uh, a scare to your immune system. So even though it's a safe, non-pathogenic, just kind of passerby virus, you can still only get it once because your body will make antibodies against it after it has seen it once, just mm-hmm. like it makes antibodies against everything that you've ever ingested, eaten, swallowed, um, that gets on your, you know, gets on or in you. So you, it's really a one-time shot. So we want to make sure that we don't inadvertently because they're, they're prevented in the future from, from getting a treatment for perhaps something else. And so we want to really make sure in those early phase two trials that we try to subdivide the patients into the people who's based on their expression profile or other various parameters are going to be the best responders so that it's best for them and also best for us. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I didn't appreciate that it was a one shot yeah, so unlike the chemotherapies where like if it doesn't work, we can just try it again at a higher dose or maybe combine it with another drug and do a combination therapy. You can't do that with, with viral therapies or you know, bacterial or really any of these kind of organisms that are used as delivery mm-hmm. tools or one-shot ponies. So if you screw it up the first time, you can't redose. So you really have to be sure. Yeah, wow, amazing. So one thing that we often <clears throat> talk to our guests about is uh, sort of the, the rise of, of advanced analytics. So maybe in the same way that you guys are at kind of the best time ever to be doing gene therapy, um, companies like mine, I, I feel like we're at the best time ever to be doing advanced data analytics to help advance therapy. So maybe you can talk a little bit to how um, your field is embracing various flavors of everything that falls under the AI umbrella. So AI, machine learning, deep learning, you know, call it what you will, but there, there are a lot of linear regression statistics in a party dress, wh- whatever you want to call it. It. Um, yes, are absolutely. you using that in your hands or, or is this something that's making a di- an impact for you guys? No, absolutely. So the gene, I will admit gene therapy field has been slow to adopt these things, <laughs> but, but we are finally coming along and the field as a whole is, is using it in two different places. So one, like I just mentioned, um, so like inpatients, so using kind of like omics profiling to, to subdivide patients. So this is more like a pre and post. So you treat them and then after you treat them, if you can get mm-hmm. samples for sequencing and then, you know, basically applying those, you know, pick your favorite word, AI, machine learning, et cetera, mm-hmm. apply these, these algorithms to see, you know, were the patients who responded best one, who had this or that, or, you know, perhaps some unknown factor you didn't even know to be measuring, but that you had measured and like, oh gosh, it turns out that the people with the highest creatinine levels were the ones that responded best. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't the ones that had this expression of this other thing. So at the treatment level, um, that's now slowly starting to be applied, uh, but it's also being applied um, kind of academically in the lab, labs like mine, where we're doing the engineering on, I'm aware of several companies now who are doing this in capsid design. And so they're making libraries of capsids, putting them under selective pressures, screening for the capsids that perform whatever it is they're trying to select for, the ability to enter this cell, to uncode at this pH, to die after five days, you know, whatever it is that they're selecting them for, uh, and then taking all of the data from those rounds, whether it's proteomics, genomics, pick your favorite omics, um, taking all of that data, and then using that as a training data set to see if they can't figure out, you know, what are the key things that are driving the winners versus
versus the losers during these trials and then seeing if they can use that information to help design the next screen sure. to be faster, better, cheaper, so that these things don't take as long and aren't so expensive. Because they are, no, they're long and expensive. <laughs> no, it makes a ton of sense though for any kind of engineering. I mean, we've had this sort of uh, design, build, test like iteration cycle. Uh, yeah, for but you know, that's been at least I've been involved in that, you know, for a decade from yeah. some of the, you know, when as soon as electrical engineering met biology, but now we have the ability to really up our, our design game. Uh, so it's not just iteration, but, but leapfrogging. That's cool. Most exciting about that too, is that it allows us as academics to get past our biases because every one of us has a bias. I'm a specialist in this thing and this is the best way to do this. Right. Um, and so using these tools allows you to get past your bias to go after targets that may not be anything you know about, but that might actually be the thing that's helping control the fact that this virus goes to this tissue and not that tissue. And so despite the fact that that may not be your wheelhouse or anything mm -hmm. that you know about, it can help force you to have to learn about it. So that's good because academics can get stuck in ruts sometimes. <laughs> and and as, as can people in companies and, and everywhere yes, else. You know. <laughs> Uh, so you also are a member of the um, Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. What does that, first of all, what does that mean? What is that like? How do, how do the organizations interact and what, what kind of benefits do you derive? Absolutely. So the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub is, is a nonprofit that has a, a pretty lofty mission. Their goal is to either cure, prevent, or manage all disease by 2100. So that is a very lofty goal. And it's partnered with the three nearby academic sister institutions, so Stanford University, UC Berkeley, and UCSF. And so we have the intramural folks here within the Biohub, and then we have the extramural investigators that we fund at those three sister universities. Yeah to help us kind of take the, the world's leading experts in various things to try to, to try to attack that mission. And so I um, help advise the genome engineering group here intramurally at CZ Biohub and then kind of do that in conjunction with my primary appointment, which is at UCSF. What, a, what an amazing uh, three organizations to bring together under one roof, exactly. I guess four it's, of them. It's nerd heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, speaking of nerd heaven, I, I'm curious, who are some of your scientific heroes? Who are, who are the lions in the field or, or who inspired you to get out and do what you do? I fell into gene therapy. I will not pretend this was my dream since childhood. During my PhD, was in a, a stem cell lab mm -hmm. and uh, my advisor said, well, what do you want to work on? And I remember I had just read some gene therapy papers and I thought, gosh, that stuff sounds kind of interesting. And I asked, could I have, could I have permission to work on gene therapy even though we're a stem cell lab? And we, lucky enough, we were well-funded. And um, he was like, well, if you can get a fellowship, go ahead. So I got a fellowship to work on gene therapy and it was off to the races and, and kind of just, entirely fell into it. The, the leaders in the field who inspire me the most um, are the ones who I feel like I model myself after, which are the few women in the field. Gene therapy is still a very heavily male-dominated field, um, and there's really only a couple, a couple mm -hmm. women at the top um, who have fought through some, some pretty serious setbacks from the field in order to get to where they are. Um, so Kathy High, who was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and at CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, mm -hmm who then went on to lead Spark Therapeutics, who then went on uh, right. to make the, the world's first uh, FDA-approved AAB gene therapeutic, the one that I mentioned, Lexterna. So going from being, you know, kind of in, in second place as, as a woman in science to, you know, really kind of beating all the haters and getting to be the one who made it to the top first, uh, that had to be sweet. <laughs> and that, uh, that is a, a true inspiration. Uh, and to us all, but I can, I can appreciate from where you said it must be. <laughs> especially powerful. Um, do you have any sort of guiding philosophy in, in how you train the next generation of sciences? So do you take grad students and, under, and uh, postdocs in your group or is it one or the other? 
So I would take any comers, whether you're undergrad, grad student, postdoc, but I, I have kind of a unique philosophy for my academic group in that I don't train anyone to be an academic. There are no positions, like I think the current numbers are something like 6% of people um, who get trained in academia will actually manage to stay. I feel like it's unfortunate that we're treating, uh, or not treating, that we're training all of our students and postdocs for positions they'll never get. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my lab, we actually flip it entirely on its head and do kind of like a flipped lab, and that rather than staying for eight years and doing a PhD and being miserable and working on 15 different projects and you're barely incrementally advancing as you go along, flipping it on its head and that you will work on one project, write one patent, write one paper, and use that body of preliminary data in gene therapy to spin out a company from academia. So we kind of use the lab as an incubator space, safe time to use these money, use this money, use these resources that are that appear here at UCSF to basically get some preliminary data that you could use to spin off a company. Because one of the saddest things to me that happens in academia, we get all this fantastic data and we publish it and the papers are amazing. And then it never leads to a clinical trial because there's just no one who's taking it all the way. It's not that the idea isn't good, not that the therapy isn't good. So there's just no one to shout it the whole way because it takes effort and it's money. Uh, and so in my lab, we, we just flip it on its head and everybody gets trained to basically go out and start a company. Amazing. So it's a little bit of a different, uh, different approach. So I don't train professors. I train CEOs and CSOs. I, I would say only in San Francisco, but I'm guessing there are folks in Boston who would correct me. Yeah, there are probably two places, yeah. <laughs> Cambridge and San Francisco where that, would, <laughs> where that would fly. No, I mean, that's really, I mean, I imagine it self-selects for certain kinds of students as well, but, but that's fine. You know, that's... Yeah. Not that you have to start a company. I mean, you could, you could take that information that you've gained and, you know, go join a fantastic, you know, like a Genentech or something somewhere mm -hmm. that really values the basic research but also making sure that just making sure it gets to the clinic. Like it just kills me that we have all these fantastic bodies of data. I mean, if you just Google gene therapy papers, you can find thousands of them and they're amazing for all these rare disorders. So I just, I'm a big believer in let's just, let's get it in the clinic. Well, you know, how are we going to pay for this stuff? I don't know. That's, <laughs> that's a topic for a whole nother podcast, but let's, let's at least get it in the clinic. Sure. But that's consistent. I mean, if Catherine High has, pay, has blazed that trail for, for your trainees, you know, Exactly. And, and I presume then UCSF is, is um, on board with licensing out the tech and so forth. I mean, it seems to be part of the yeah, mindset. For the most part, in, in yeah. whether you're in Cambridge or San Francisco, any of those universities, they yeah. are more than happy to, to let you and encourage you and will hold your hand throughout the entire process to help you spin out a company from within academia and license out that technology. Mm -hmm. Either if, it's, if you want to start the company, they can, they can license it to you and have you develop it. Or if you don't want to start a company, they'll license it out to, to other big pharma who are, who are interested in, in taking that technology forward. Any any predictions? Gene therapy in five years? How many FDA approvals? What's it? I mean, in the next six months, I think we're going to have another two. Okay. So five years from now, shoot, dozens. Cool. Um, maybe even more. We maybe could hit a hundred if it really ramps. And it's not that there won't be enough people who are applying. Yeah. Approval. It's just whether or not the FDA can scale up and on their end handle the number the number of approvals which are coming. Because it's I think they're sitting on I think the last time I looked, which was a couple of weeks ago, it was something like 116, okay. give or take, IND applications right now today they're sitting yeah. on. So much less the ones that they're gonna receive in the next few years. So it's it'll be a lot. Gotcha. Gotcha. And these well, will be cures. Some of these will be therapies, but some of these will be cures. Well, hopefully they're listening. I mean, the last few years, they've actually seemed to be fairly responsive to the need to move quicker in some yeah. areas. And so. they are ramping up. They're hiring folks. They're training folks. Like, they, you know, this is no small task. We've asked them to just magically, you know, come up with a solution with overnight. I mean, they've, they've never had to review a viral product before, and now all of a sudden they've yeah. got hundreds. So it's, you know, there's, well, we're well, all good. together. <laughs>
Yeah, you, you always want to make sure there's plenty from the demand side. So, yeah. Nicole, thank you so much. This was really a lot of fun. This has been episode 10 of Talking Precision Medicine. Thanks for listening. 